So welcome to this uh, day to explore and develop in wise speech, skillful speech, uh, this very crucial area of our practice. In a way, uh, Western meditation centers or uh, places emphasizing Buddhist practice, or I think probably many forms of spiritual practice, have really emphasized um, meditation. And we haven't emphasized so much, surprisingly in a way, how to bring the qualities of mindfulness, compassion, wisdom, skillful action into the daily flow. And why speech is there as one of the core training areas in the traditional Buddhist path. But I think Westerners, by and large, have been really fascinated with meditation, wanting to use it, get quiet, go deep, and so forth. And in a way, we haven't developed so much uh, practices to cultivate wise speech. And this day-long is an effort to do that, to not to avoid, but to cultivate uh, skillful speech. And it's a really fundamental area for having our practice of uh, developing mindfulness, wisdom, compassion come alive in daily life. Many of us may complain about not having enough time for meditation. Does anyone complain, oh, half an hour is so hard? Anyone complain like that sometimes? No, it's really hard to find 15 minutes even, 20 minutes, 30 minutes meditation. Guess what? If you turn your speech into spiritual practice, many of us have five or 10 hours a day. So after today, your complaints will not be heard so sympathetically. <laughs> so, or they will, but, uh, but you get my point. That, and so it's been an interest of mine really for quite a long time. Uh, I think maybe dating from almost 30 years ago, when a close friend of mine, we were really interested in meditation and other things together, and she knew me pretty well, and she said, Donald, you, you don't really practice wise speech at all, do you? <laughs> and I, I don't remember exactly what I said. I may have responded with unwise speech. <laughs> <laughs> but it, uh, when I looked uh, carefully at myself, I had to agree with her that I didn't give a lot of conscious attention to how I spoke. And it really started an interest in that. And then... Um, my, my, one of my uh, main interests from near the beginning of my practice was how to bring inner work into social service and social change work. So naturally, an emphasis on skillful speech was very important. You know, and I've been involved, as Mary Ellen said, with uh, different kinds of training programs over the years, starting in the uh, kind of mid-90s, for people doing social service and social change work. And we started to emphasize uh, skillful speech and really started to develop uh, ways of understanding skillful speech and training. Because as we'll see, there's some material that we get from tradition, but not that much. And not that much actual, precise, practical guidance. So some of what we'll be getting today is quite traditional. Some of it comes out of our own laboratory of developing ways to bring skillful speech 
into everyday life, you know, in this culture. And so it's been a very um, central interest of mine for, I don't know, 20, 25 years. And I've st- I started about uh, 12 or 13 years ago to uh, offer uh, retreats, which I would co-teach on skillful speech or wise speech. And, and that permitted uh, the further development of a number of tools and perspectives. And so it's been a very, very crucial interest. And I maybe just by way of further introduction of myself, so I have been very interested in what our practice is like in daily life with, you know, with work, relationships, social action, families, etc. But I've also been very um, interested in, in traditional practice and I've spent time in Thailand at monasteries and you know, I, I teach some of our uh, longer retreats. I, I've taught our month-long retreat uh, several times. I'll be teaching next March. So I'm very interested in very traditional understandings of going to the depths of meditation practice, but also of integrating it with daily life, speech. I also have uh, some background in psychology. And some of you know one of my interests has been on working with the theme of transforming the judgmental mind and working on a book on that now, which may come up some in our, our, uh, our day-to-day. But it's been a very strong interest. Um, it also came out of my own working with my own mind. So it wasn't just like coincidentally an interesting topic to write about, if you get my drift. <laughs> And so, but it's also very pervasive and kind of that theme, of course, interweaves with our speech practice because what do you do when you have judgments coming at you? Very hard. Most of us, it's very hard uh, to work with that because we get, you know, basically triggered into, you know, the reptilian brain, (laughs) which is responsible for emotional survival and so forth. the reptilian brain, the limbic system, which generally, when they get really um, activated, mindfulness is pretty hard. And the uh, neocortex, that part which thinks clearly, is also often put out of operation. Right? Anyway, we won't go too much into the brain, but it's, I'll sometimes make references to that because it's kind of helpful. I think it helps our practice. So those are... Um, a range of my own, <clears throat> my own interests. And um, speech is very central. I'll say a little bit about the day <clears throat> in terms of the <clears throat> organization. Um, I've divided the day into four segments. We'll have two segments before lunch. We'll have uh, the first segment, which will be more introductory and take us into some of the traditional teachings of the Buddha on skillful speech. Then we'll have about a 20-minute period of walking meditation, going back into silence. Then we'll come back for a second segment, which will be on the role of mindfulness in skillful speech, including the possibility of being mindful as we're speaking which is not so easy, but it's possible. 
You know, and the, these first two segments I'll be thinking of as foundational trainings in wise speech or skillful speech. Then, you know, more or less around 1245, we'll have about an hour for lunch. And my suggestion is to take the first period of it coming back to some silence. And then if you wish, you could stay in silence for that. You could also check out your speech during lunch and take it as a practice period, right? Um, very much encouraged. So we can have, you know, we can, you can have, we can have this informal time and you can say, and we'll have, we have a community of practitioners. And so you can, uh, talk with someone and you can agree to work with a particular tool that we will have developed in the morning. That's fun. That's what we, in our retreats, we, we do that for six or seven days. You know, we have practice periods and get to work with tools and have informal times when we're still practicing, but in more like everyday life type situations. So that's the morning. So basic foundational uh, tools and understandings in the morning, lunch, and then in the afternoon, we'll bring those foundational capacities to uh, challenging situations. And we'll bring in a range of challenges to our ability to be present, clear, employ wise speech. It might be when there are some kind of conflicts. We'll work with very mild conflicts, you know, initially conflicts or you know, someone's being judgmental of me or I'm being judgmental of another person or where there are in some way challenging interactions involving speech. And we'll develop some, uh, again, tools and perspectives that are helpful. It's a wonderful area. When we do the six or seven day retreats, we, we, do, we work with foundational capacities for the first four days and then the last two or three days we apply it to difficulties you know, for two days. And we have role plays and, you know, it's fun. So we'll do some of that in the afternoon. And then the last part of the uh, afternoon, again, we'll have two segments uh, uh, divided by walking meditation for about 20 minutes, a chance to go back into silence. And then we'll end with some integrative time. And throughout the day, there'll be time for you know, there'll be instruction in uh, both teachings and practices, but there'll also be plenty of time for uh, discussion, questions, and so forth. And there'll be a lot of interactive exercises. We'll do, mostly we'll do the exercises in dyads, groups of two, where there'll be instructions and we get to try things out continually. Okay? Um, so any questions just about the organization of the day? Any logistical questions before we get right into the content? Okay. And during the, during the walking periods, I will be available if people want to come up and ask a question or so. You know, and I'll, I'll see how my energy is maybe the last part of the... Uh, lunchtime as well. But during the walking periods, if you want to ask a one-on-one -on -one question, uh, I should be available. Okay? So, uh, again, this area of uh, wise speech is um, so crucial that, you know, it, we know that uh, unskillful speech 
can sever relationships. You know, we know that a few words can lead to a conflict interpersonally in which we um, maybe lose a friendship, right? We know that words are very powerful. There's a New Yorker cartoon which really brings this out, which shows a scene of a woman sitting on a couch and uh, standing up talking with her is someone who seems like a um, detective with notes in hand. Behind the couch is a police officer. Also behind the couch, you can see um, legs with the feet sticking straight up, which seem to belong to a body that's mostly behind the couch. And the caption for the cartoon is, he misspoke. I misheard. Shots rang out. (laughs) Anyone ever experienced some version of that? (laughs) Right. So things happen very quickly with speech and they can be destructive. You know, I haven't studied it closely, but I'm sure that uh, wars have essentially been started by unskillful speech. Right. And so we know that that can happen. Socrates, the originator of Western philosophy, the mentor to Plato, said the misuse of language induces evil in the soul. This is a powerful statement. So language is so crucial to us living our values. And yet we, we rarely get much instruction on it, right? On how to be skillful. We also know that... Uh, Skillful speech can be incredibly healing and helpful. That if I'm in distress and I talk to someone who's empathic, a good listener, and connects through speech or maybe even just through listening without saying much, we know how healing that is. We know how important that is. That someone who is quite skilled, whether through training or even a lot of people more naturally, that that person can make a huge difference in the world. There's a a Jewish uh, rabbi and writer named Abraham Joshua Heschel. Some of you know his name. He was uh, a refugee from Nazi Germany, came to the U.S., was a teacher, but also walked with Dr. King in Selma and was, uh, and he used to speak of holiness in words, which a phrase I very much like. So we have that, we have that uh, potential. So very, very crucial capacity. Um, let, me, let me invite you just to reflect on your own intentions for being here. You know, what, what brings you here? It might be, might be in resonance to anything I said, but something may have brought you here 
I'd, lo- I'd love to hear just from a few people. So we actually have um, microphones and can we, um, maybe it's better just to go to the microphone or can we also bring them around? Okay, why don't we, one, I'd like to hear if you could think of phrasing your intention for being here in one sentence. You know, like I'm here because I want to um, just be more conscious in my speech. And let's hear, hear a few and maybe I'll write these down. Yeah. I, I want to get better at my mother's advice of if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. <laughs> so the great capacity to sometimes be silent and sometimes pause. Very, very crucial. Yeah. Yeah. Any others? If you could formulate an intention for being here in maybe in one sentence. I want to be... I tend to shrink around loud, vexatious people. Yeah. So being more skillful with loud and vexatious people? Okay. How many can relate to that? <laughs> Which sometimes might be avoiding them. But, but sometimes that... Avoidance is unavoidable. Or is that right? No, they're unavoidable. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Let, let's, use, let's wait for the mic. Okay. Well, one in the back and then you, then you next. I want restraint of tongue. Restraint of tongue. Just to... Uh, okay, let, let me... Just to have that capacity to sometimes not speak when similar to the other one. Yeah. Thank you. Please. I want to be able to respond compassionately when someone uh, puts me down and uses colorful words. Yeah. So to respond compassionately to put downs to or judgments and uh, including using kind of what I'm interpreting, activating words. What? Yeah, yeah, like the middle finger. Yeah, okay. Maybe take two or three more. Yeah, please. I wish to be able to line up my thinking, my feeling, my action, and what what I speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to be more integrated, to connect, so the speech really reflects your your actual thinking and feelings and values. Yeah, thank you. Back here? Oh, a lot of, a lot of, in, okay, yeah. Yes, I'd like to uh, be able to effectively communicate in conflict without mirroring the conflict. Yeah. Speak in a conflict without getting caught in it, huh? And how many can relate to that or some of the others? That, uh, how many can relate to two of, or more of the intentions that have been given? Yeah. Okay, please. I feel like I can relate to every intention so far. But um, I guess I just want to give one contextual sentence before I say the intention. The contextual sentence is sometimes um, I'm so engaged that I, uh, my speech is very active, whether that's enthusiasm, 
hurt, defensiveness, reactivity, the whole nine yards, positive and negative. And what I wish is to be able to even do that first step effectively where you can be engaged and still slow your thinking down Mm -hmm. so that you can make better decisions about when to speak, what to speak, and how to speak it. Yeah, thank you. How many can relate to that one? Okay, great. Maybe let's do two more. Okay. Okay. I think I'm neglecting the left side. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, please. Um, I would like to cultivate more kind and loving compassion towards my own thoughts and my own head, towards myself. Yeah. Be a compassionate friend to me first and then emanate that in the world. So that brings in the great peace that usually when we speak about skillful speech, it's referring to outward speech, but we also want to pay attention to inward speech because they are related. (laughs) Okay. Um, To learn how to advocate for clients and also myself um, in a way that I get to be heard and not seen as too forceful. Yeah. Advocate in a way so you're not seen as too forceful. Um, Of course, we can't control how we're seen, uh, which is an important point, but we can... um, we can minimize the, some, the chances of being seen that way. Yeah. 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 So it might be to, yeah, it might be what can I do in my own understanding to be less forceful or to be more skillful. Yeah. Okay. We had, you had one and we'll do, okay. Okay. I'll do um, two more, one here, one to my right. Okay. And then uh, you can come up right in the. Okay, we we had one. No, we had. I'm just going to do two more right up front here in the center. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to understand more fully through the eyes of the Dharma. A little closer. I wanted to understand more fully through the eyes of the Dharma, sort of the role of empathic listening hmm. and holding each other accountable for wise speech. Mm-hmm. Sort of the flow of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we'll we'll work explicitly with empathy in the afternoon. And um, yeah, it's a good question about accountability. Yeah, thank you. And last one? I think it's all touched already, but um, just healing. Healing others and in that process healing yourself. Um, the damage of, of um, the speech, unwise and skillful speech that causes so much harm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So, great intentions. Um, maybe I saw one more hand. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, right in the back. So I'm gonna take one more and then set the boundary. I'm not really sure how this fits, but I recognize that my speech as a North American. Um, it comes from a very privileged place. Yeah. And when I travel and encounter other people, yeah. I like to have a more empathic understanding of of my place and um, uh, receive more 
your place in? Of, of my privilege, actually. Yeah, so really understanding our social setting in relation to issues of privilege and how that affects speech. Absolutely. Yeah, great. Thank you. Okay. Good, and hold these intentions, and I'll, I've written them all down. I'll try to integrate things, but if uh, they're not being given enough attention, bring them up. Okay. So, what? Um, I'm going to, I think I'm going to say, let it, why don't you let it come out a little bit later? Is that okay? Okay. Good. So, just a few words now about the traditional understanding of skillful speech. Then we'll do an exercise. I think then that'll probably uh, take us towards the walking meditation. So, interestingly, in the traditional teachings, what is usually translated as right speech, which we usually talk about as more as wise speech, is one of the eight areas of training. You may think of the Buddhist tradition as being a bunch of monks and nuns who are meditating all the time. If you actually read the text, they were, they were talking a lot. So, Because it, it could be a little bit curious. Why is one of the eight areas of training right speech? Samavaka, I think it is. And I should say that the, the right is a little bit of a problematic translation. It could be also talked about as mature speech or well-developed speech. The word is sama, which is similar to words like summary, which has to do with a certain level of completion. So it really means wise, skillful, well-developed, mature speech. Um, and of course, there's unskillful speech, which would be, could be translated as wrong speech. But it's interesting that this was one of the eight areas of training. And uh, the areas of training in the Noble Eightfold Path are not all about meditation. One of the core characteristics of that model of training is that all the areas are necessary and they're interconnected. So that when you train in speech, one's also training, if you follow that model, in mindfulness, in wisdom, in, li- in living ethically, in other ways. And that's a very crucial point. Probably more crucial for how we understand mindfulness that in the tradition, mindfulness was always understood as related to living ethically. In our Western context, we've often, especially in what's called secular mindfulness, mindfulness is just taught as a technique without necessarily being connected to ethical context. I once spoke with a a colleague who was teaching in corporate settings and said, how do you connect mindfulness to ethics in Uh, what you're doing, and the person responded, huh? Which I was a little shocked by, right? And and so we can see that. So that interconnection of all of them, so we'll see that in developing skillful speech, the tools of mindfulness, loving kindness, uh, wisdom play a very, very crucial role. And again, I want to say that the development of skillful speech in Western communities, I would say, has been somewhat uh, underdeveloped. This relates to your question to some extent. And we can see how in um, a number of Western communities, including Spirit Rock, 
sometimes there have been conflicts that have developed and uh, people have not necessarily been skillful in working with conflict or skillful speech. And uh, in fact, this was so much the case that in some of the communities connected with the Thai forest tradition, some of you know teachers like Achan Amaro, Achan Samedo, Achan just means teacher, uh, but they're mostly monasteries. They were finding they were sometimes having conflicts and people weren't necessarily develop, developing skillful speech. And so there was, you know, they brought in actually uh, an emphasis on skillful speech. They also brought in the discipline of nonviolent communication developed by Marshall Rosenberg and complemented that. In fact, in the retreats that I co-lead, we bring together traditional teachings with developing mindfulness during speaking, what we call sometimes relational awareness practices, which we'll develop some, which we've been more innovative with. And we also connect that with nonviolent communication, which I'll bring in some in the afternoon. So this is an issue that's developed in Western communities because of sometimes the lack of adequate attention to skillful speech, working with conflicts, and so forth. So it's, it's an area which I think is very, is very, very crucial. This is from uh, the teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, a uh, Vietnamese teacher. This is his expression of the basic guideline for skillful speech. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I vow to cultivate loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness for suffering, I vow to learn to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. I am determined not to spread news that I do not know to be certain and not to criticize or condemn things of which I am not sure. I will refrain from uttering words that can cause the family or community to break. I will make all efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. And people actually in his communities uh, have an intention to, within a week of any difficulty or conflict, to come together to try to resolve it. What would that be like if that was held generally in our families, workplaces, communities, the halls of Congress? Hope that wasn't triggering. <laughs> okay. Okay. There, there may be references to the general political situation from time to time. Okay. Uh, I, I actually, when I was uh, 19 or 18, 19, I actually worked in the U.S. Congress as an intern. This was, this was some time ago, but it was, uh, I was rather disillusioned. It was a hard experience because I, I felt that people were so intent on re-election and playing political games that they weren't interested in dealing with the deeper real issues. And as an 18-year-old, that was, that was hard to take, right? And it's got worse. I think, you know. Anyway, okay. Yeah, so please, if you need to use the bathroom, I'll go probably for another half hour or so before we have a, have a break. So if you need to use the bathroom, fine to just, just get up.
in the traditional teachings, again, speech was one of four areas of training. And the primary guidance in my own interpretation was more giving ethical guidelines for speech. So one of the main ways that we inherit the tradition is by having a number of guidelines, which are guidelines for our training. This is part of what we'll get today. So I interpret those guidelines as suggesting that our speech should follow four criteria. And they all have to be together. If you follow just one of them and the other three aren't there, it can be a problem. And they all are general and need to be unpacked, right? Need to be clarified as to what they mean. The first is that we're invited to be truthful. The second is we're invited to be helpful in our speech. The third is we're we're invited or asked to come from a kind heart. And I should say that that kind heart doesn't mean being nicey-nice. And one can actually have a, a, a compassionate or kind heart in difficult situations. You know, that was actually the, one of the intentions was related to that. How can I essentially keep my own center in conflict or difficult speech? And this was one of the intentions. The third guideline is to keep that loving, kind heart, even if it's tough love. (laughs) You know, or I I like to talk about tough loving kindness. (laughs) Right, that, that that's possible. How can one do that? And the fourth guideline, interestingly, is to have especially good timing with our speech. So I, I like to think that the Buddha was always going around talking to the practitioners. How's your timing? How's your timing? How's your timing going? You know, because it, uh, interestingly, one can be truthful and helpful and come from a kind heart and have bad timing. And it's a mess. <laughs> right? So you have to have all four of them together, which is, which is kind of a tall order. So I'll speak about each of them and then about ways to practice. And uh, can be, can be, this can be a very strong way to practice. Some of you who want to take what we're doing today and bring it into your daily lives, for example, could work with these guidelines for the next month. And that would be very fruitful. I've done that. I've worked with guidelines with groups. One group, we worked with it for six months. We worked with each guideline for a month and then we brought them all together. Right? And you can do that. So I would sometimes be, I would have the guidelines by my telephone and I would, uh, a telephone would ring and I would say to myself, truthful, helpful, good heart, Good timing. Hello. (laughs) And I would also sometimes write down the guidelines at meetings. Right? In fact, I actually was able, I I once worked at at Saybrook Graduate School in San Francisco, one of the so-called alternative graduate schools. And um, we were having communication issues at times among the faculty. And so we naturally uh, set up a committee <laughs> to study the matter. And I was on the committee, and I mentioned these four guidelines. People really resonated with them. And 
the whole faculty agreed at all of our faculty meetings to have me stand up at the beginning of the meetings, have poster board, write down the four guidelines, speak about them briefly, and we would all agree to follow them. And some of the people who were widely regarded as the worst offenders would sometimes begin their contributions by saying, I'm not sure that this is really following the guidelines, but, <laughs> but I think it affected them, actually, and affected others. And so I'll be primarily talking about individual practice, but we can bring what we're learning in skillful speech into group settings. And simply you know, imagine a chat room that would have these guidelines for skillful speech, right? It can be brought into group settings online, in organizations and work. Helpful if people get some training as well, but, but it can really change things when people agree to guidelines. It doesn't mean you always follow them, but it's an intention. And it can, again, it can be the basis, like your question, for accountability, right? Like when people make an agreement to work with these guidelines, then of course... When they don't, one can say, can bring it up and in a sense hold them accountable, right? So very crucial. And a community where these guidelines are held can be really more oriented around skillful speech. And um, we do that to some extent here, could do it a lot more fully, I would say. So the first guideline about truthfulness is... Very, very crucial, of course. And we know, that, uh, we know that truthfulness is crucial for interpersonal relationships, for communities. If truthfulness is not there, of course, as it is in our larger political setting, right? I mean, in, a, in shocking ways, right? In, in very shocking ways, you know, I think the... Uh, uh, New York Times, what, chronicles untruths coming from the president, right? And I think it's said that there are an average of 6.5 falsehoods a day, right? This is shocking, right? And, and I, I should also say that the, you know, these guidelines are ones that we can follow, but they, again, can also define a community. And when we follow the guidelines in, in the way that I interpret uh, the ethical guidelines, it also means that if something is occurring where there is lying in some way going against the speech guidelines, that one has a responsibility to do something. You know, when it's occurring in your workplace or your family or whatever, or nationally. So it's a, you know, it's a very real issue. But we can see how falsehoods and lies can really disorient people and can leave people asking what's real, what's, what's not real, and so forth. And that, of course, can break down interpersonal and community trust. So a very, very crucial, uh, crucial guideline. When we look to the practice of working with truthfulness, there are different levels to it. On the one hand, we want to look at when we actually tell outright lies. And for us, that may be rather seldom. You know, we can talk about that. But it, it may not be so often. We may, we may rather seldomly tell overt lies and they may be circumscribed. Like, you know, like when I was a kid, I thought my feet were too big and so I didn't tell the truth about my 
shoe size. And maybe there's a counterpart of that. We have maybe we have something like that uh, that we that we do, you know. And uh, but on the other hand, there's a way that we can also investigate this guideline of truthfulness by seeing when we fudge things or when we uh, tell half-truths. We may not tell so many overt lies, but when do we exaggerate? When do we say something to make ourselves look better or not make ourselves look, we think, not so good? When do we have uh, omissions? We don't say something. Right, so you can see that even without outright lies, there are a lot of things we can look at in terms of this guideline of, of truthfulness. And we can also see how the guidelines are very connected with mindfulness because it's the mindfulness that can help us to notice. Oh, look what I just said. Look what I just thought. Right. So mindfulness is crucial for our speech practice to really be able to track what we're saying and to be able to notice. Uh, And then, of course, we could, if we notice ourselves telling uh, a half-truth or giving an exaggeration, we can use that, and this is part of the speech practice, as a starting point for inquiry. What's going on? So part of our speech practice is noticing our speech, noticing when we fall, as it were, away from these guidelines, and then asking what's going on. And so it's an investigation. It's a big part of our uh, mindfulness practice is actually looking more deeply into our minds, seeing what's there, seeing what the patterns are. Is that coming out of anxiety about how I'll be seen? We want to look at that. We want to notice what's there. And so mindfulness practice very closely connected with speech practice. So we can start to see those, those connections. The second guideline is helpfulness. And here, it's really to look at our motivation. Are we being helpful towards others? Or are we not? What's, what's my motivation? Uh, we also start to see how the different guidelines go together. That I can be truthful and not be helpful. Right? I can be truthful very truthful with the aim to hurt someone else, right? We call that sometimes dumping, right? Or call it by other words, but I can be truthful with the intention to hurt. And so that's really crucial because we might think, oh, I'm being truthful, but we haven't brought in the other guidelines of being helpful. And so again, if we think of ourselves, this again relates to some of the intentions, we might... uh, find ourselves about to say something that we justify by the fact that we think it's truthful, but is actually not helpful. In fact, it's intending to hurt. And again, when we go against this guideline, we can notice it with our mindfulness. We can maybe pause, or like several of the, <clears throat> several of the intentions, we don't say something, because we notice, oh, it's truthful, but it's not helpful. In fact, I'm trying to harm. So again, our mindfulness is really crucial. And again, we can look into uh, what's going on. Um, Why am I, you know, where is this intention to harm coming from? Again, this looking can be, oh, maybe maybe, 
I feel harmed by the other, right? And I'm reactive, right? So we want to see that. The third guideline is to have something like uh, warm or loving speech, again, challenged when we're in difficult situations, but the aspiration is to come is to not lose our connection with our own kind hearts. That's a tall order, right? Because, of course, we lose our intention with our kind hearts um, ordinarily just when we're preoccupied, right? Or when we are, certainly, when we have negative stuff coming at us. So this is a very demanding guideline. It's possible, though. You know, and this is where we can look to some of the great, even spiritual activists, look to people who were able to keep a center in difficult times. Some people like Dr. King or Dorothy Day. And you can study their lives and find that they try to really keep to that kind speech, or we could say empathy. You know, try to, how can, and we'll look in the afternoon, how can you keep with empathy when you have hard stuff coming at you? Empathy is a way to do that, to stay with empathy. Oh, and it, it takes a lot of training, a lot of, a lot of practice. So I'm not saying that this is all something we should be able to master by the end of the day. Sorry. But, but, and, and so that this is, uh, the training in wise speech is really a long-term endeavor. But that being said, I'm going to, you know, by the end of the day, I'll say, here's what you could do if you want to follow this up. Do this for the next two weeks. Do that for two weeks. And we can really make it a curriculum. And maybe even, I'm thinking out loud, maybe even we can organize some so that people could uh, form informal groups where you work together and you agree to work with this and maybe you, you connect online or something like that. You know, I'll talk about resources later. One of the inspirations for me um, about this third category of loving speech came from my mother, uh, Bernice, who, who was in many ways uh, an activist. And she told a story of hearing a talk by someone who was actually one of my teachers in college, uh, a man named Robert Lifton, who uh, was a psychiatrist and uh, an activist and very uh, a major, major writer. And he was giving a talk that my mom went to. And um, at the end of the talk, a woman asked a question which really showed that she hadn't understood the talk. And there was somewhat of a collective groan <laughs> went up. And everyone was expecting Robert Lifton to say, no, I didn't say that. You got that wrong, you know. But he came in that context with warmth and understanding and empathy and connection. And he, he said, you know, oh, I really see how you might have thought that. And he brought it around so he wasn't overtly criticizing her, but still was bringing out his own understanding. And when I talked to my mom about wise speech and about these criteria and getting ready for some teaching, this was 10 years later, the whole thing took two minutes. That's what she remembered. She remembered that instance of caring speech in a somewhat conflictual situation. Right? So that's something, again, we can aspire towards. And then the fourth guideline is... Uh, especially focused on timing, but it also has to do with appropriateness. Is this the right time to speak? 
or is my, another way it's talked about is, is my speech appropriate? And the Buddha in this teaching sometimes pointed to speech, which was, uh, the translations are sometimes that they are gossipy, which I think is a little bit problematic translation, but basically a kind of speech where we're, you know, we're just loose at the mouth, right? And he was questioning that because it could easily lead to very unskillful speech, especially if you're talking negatively about other people, right? So he, so the question was, is my speech really appropriate? Why am I, you know, might be, what am I doing now? So these are the four criteria. And these can go, these can go a long way to guide our speech. They're really behavioral or ethical guidelines. Again, we can work with them in ways that I did, like with the telephone or at the meeting. Again, they can be brought into groups. And they each are, of course, as I've given them, pretty general. And they're, they're, of course, when we look deeply into them, there are a lot of subtleties and complications. But they give us a starting point for practice. You know, and people I've worked with have sometimes used them very much in the moment. One person I worked with who had challenges with her teenage daughter used to go into conversations with her daughter with the guidelines written on her hand. And she would, she would be there and be looking at them through sometimes difficult conversations, right? So you can do that. Or, you know, again, I would, uh, I would write, down, I'd write down the guideline at meetings and I'd be there and I, you know, I would try to follow the guidelines, but it would be very helpful for noticing at a meeting, you know, one, one experience would be at the beginning of the meeting, things going well, mind calm, peaceful, you know, hour and a half later, getting tired, sarcastic thoughts developing. I would, I would have this mindfulness log, which I'd be writing down at the meeting to help me track my own mind. And that really helped me not to say those thoughts, right? So mindfulness, along with these guidelines, can go, go a long way, okay? So any, I want to do an exercise just in a moment, but any, um, any questions about those guidelines, how they might figure in our practice, anything that I've just said? Uh, it could be in relation to some of your intentions and interests. Let me take a few questions, then we'll do an exercise together, then we'll go to walking, okay? Okay, so we can, the people with the microphones can bring them to people with the hands up. It looks like we have four. Maybe I'll take just these four in terms of time. Okay, just the people with their hands up now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my question is, can we overdo one of those things, like being too helpful <laughs> yeah. or too truthful, or does it have to have a balance? Yeah, so great question. Can I... You know, can I be overly helpful or overly truthful? That's where, you know, I, I think the answer would be yes. And this is really to, uh, this is where the mindfulness really helps. Like, what's going on? Am I trying to be helpful because I want to make a good impression? You know, and so we're always wanting to connect these intentions with seeing what's going on in the mind. So I think we can be overly helpful. We could overdo the warmth and kindness. It can be a little bit overdone. I use the phrase nicey-nice, right? That's, a, I think, an occupational hazard of people who do meditation. <laughs> now, I think I once gave a talk on why Western Buddhists are overly, overly nice. 
It was critical. You know, I wasn't always so nice in the talk about that. Anyway, but I think we can do that. That's again, the crucial point is bring the four together, right? And that sometimes helps us to see if we're unbalanced in some way. But yeah, I think it's, uh, it's really just continually inquiring, seeing what's there. Thank you. Okay, please. Let's use the mic. Oh, yeah. Okay. My question was about timing. Yeah. A um, little closer to your. Sure. So when you said about, I, I understand the part about you know speaking negatively and speaking loosely. Yeah. I was also wondering, sort of, and maybe this has to do with kindness. To think about when you initially mentioned it, I was thinking like timing of when when say somebody's upset or yeah. I need to confront somebody when would be a good time That's right. when yeah. everything's calm. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of that has to do with reading the other person. Yeah. So is that more about having the best intention for timing? No, I think it's a, it's a great question. We'll look, we'll look some also into it in the afternoon, but it's a great question. What does is, what is, uh, good timing mean in a conflict? You know, I mentioned Thich Nhat Hanh's community. They have the guideline to, if there's a difficulty or conflict, come back within a week, Right. Uh, you know, meaning while it's fresh, while you can have some remembrance of what actually happened, but not necessarily in the heat of things happening. So yeah, it would be very, generally very skillful not to have a conversation about difficult things when one or both parties, when there are two people involved, are reactive, right? As best one can. This is not always easy. Some people may stay reactive for a while, but if I'm reactive, meaning that I'm kind of on automatic and I'm triggered, that's typically not the best uh, time because the nervous system gets activated. Again, some of the reptilian brain gets activated and I actually, you know, and I, you know, that tends to shut down empathy, which, you know, makes it very hard to listen to another person, right? So we want to look for the conditions when we might have openness and um, we can have our own intention to have good timing. One of the challenges of skillful speech in the case of conflicts is that um, it's not uncommon for the other person not to want to talk, right? How many people have important relationships at home or at work where you'd like to speak about some difficulty but the other person isn't willing, right? That's quite common, right? It's, that's, a hard, that's a very hard one. You know, how do you work with that? So maybe we can go more into that in the afternoon. You can, you know, what I'll point to in the afternoon is one can always have one's best skillful speech no matter what the other person is doing. Even if we're not satisfied by the intention to actually work things out. Other people are not always interested in working things out and we can't force them to, right? So that's, that's, a, that's a real hard one, right? Uh, but yeah, we would try to get a gauge of our own mental, emotional, physical state, get a gauge of the other person's, and of course, ask when would be a good time. You know? And this, this, is, this is hard, right? And again, in some communities, not so commonly, but like in the Thich Nhat Hanh community, people have an agreement to try to work things out. That's rare, isn't it? Right, but that... If you have a community where people agree to try to work things out. The other point to make is that, again, we're getting into some complications, is that sometimes in some challenges, of course, mediation is is important. To have a third person who's perceived as neutral, 
right? And I've sometimes personally functioned as a mediator in difficulties, and sometimes that role makes it possible where the two people couldn't do it on their own, right? So that's sometimes that's sometimes very crucial. Yeah, thank you. And we'll we'll come back to that because that's a big one. Yeah, please. Um, regarding truthful, I have a friend who tells little white lies. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I understand that comes from a place of not wanting to harm someone else. Like yeah. if you ask, how does this look or whatever, they don't want to tell you it looks like crap. Or, yeah. So when is it okay for someone to tell little lies? And I know I can't change the person. The only thing I can do is choose to be with them or not. And, yeah, well, let's... And it's um, uncomfortable because I'm... It's a good question. Let's start with when is it okay for you to tell white lies? Maybe, I'm, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but... Oh, yeah, you are. Okay. <laughs> um, but or maybe I should rephrase that. When is, it, uh, when is it okay for each of us to tell white lies? You know? And it's, again, it's the, the, the guidelines are not absolutes. Right? That's, that's an important one. And so I imagine that it's sometimes skillful to tell a white lie. Uh, but we, I think the, you know, what the presence of the guideline does is it helps us ask the question. And, and I think there'd be uh, an encouragement to see about other options. You know, like, is it more skillful for me just to say silent rather than say something? Or is it, um, you, know, you know, of course, you know, with children, it becomes, it's very, very different, isn't it? with children or with people who may be, what, um, in need of encouragement and so forth. So it's, it's tricky, right? I think that's what you were getting at, that it's really tricky. Uh, I think mostly for ourselves, if we have the tools of mindfulness, we want to look into our own motivation and see what's there. And for others, I think probably to, to go to empathy and say, okay, what's there for this other person? And of course, if we, you know, if we're close to the person, we could say some things and probably in a lot of contexts, it wouldn't be the worst thing, right? So, okay, thanks. Maybe we had, uh, maybe one more. Who was that? This is, might be a similar question, but I work um, in pediatric hospice. Yeah. And often parents don't want to tell their child what's happening. Oh, yeah. And when the child's old enough, from my perspective, they should know and they do know even if they're not talking about it. So I'm curious, again, with the, like, it's not like a lie by omission or, like, not being truthful when that person, the parent, thinks that's actually the kindest thing to do. Yeah. And I might hold that differently and how to sort of approach that from a wise speech perspective yeah. to understand that. So we're, we're pointing to some difficult situations, which is natural. Um, yeah, I think, I think I want to emphasize for us, it's really a matter of inquiry and noticing and probably not a right answer. And of course, you know, when we look to how we hold um, death and dying, there are huge cultural issues there, right? And and uh, you know, generally our culture, you know, is still coming from massive denial about death, and you see that probably close up, right, all the time. Um, and so, 
there are a lot of there are a lot of tricky issues. I think mostly it's to as a practitioner to notice what's happening and to uh, you know if you're going to intervene and have more truthfulness, connect with the other guidelines. But it, you know, a certain amount of uh, white lies gets institutionalized in the medical profession, doesn't it? You know, I, you know, when my when my mother was dying, I learned about the diagnostic category failing to thrive. You heard that? That means dying. <laughs> Often, Maybe you know better than me, but. In our context, it meant dying, but they weren't saying dying, right? It was kind of like, probably a lot of you have had experience with that. Yeah, is that, is that more or less accurate? In children, it could be a medical condition. It could be all sorts of things. Yeah, okay. In our case, it seemed to be dying, but it was not said that way. Yeah, so there's, there are cultural complexities there. So we had one more, and then we'll go to an exercise. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, The guidelines raised another context for me that maybe we can look at, but I couldn't help but applying those guidelines and questions to um, uh, emailing and texting and how we have almost a different standard for what's acceptable to say in those formats that to me in my experience, has cultivated on my part and the part of others some very hurtful, bad, bad speech. Yeah, great, great observation. And, of course, um, digital communication might be f- communication that follows these same guidelines. And I know to the extent that I've been part of uh, some kind of online discussions, and some of them we've agreed to keep the four guidelines. I probably wouldn't want to be part of a group that didn't, right? And of course, the online setting brings out all sorts of reactivity, right? Need I say more, <laughs> right? And so it's a, really, it's a really great question. And so do I want to, you know, and there are different ways to respond to that. How might I myself try to keep to skillful speech? One thing, could I have agreements with people in certain settings. You know, like I say, we've done that. One could do that. You know, our, you know the, when I mentioned the um, <clears throat> organizational setting of the uh, graduate school where I, had, where I helped to have agreement about the guidelines, that was meant to apply to email. And we agreed on that so there would be accountability. But by and large, uh, you know, it's, it's not really followed very much, is it? Almost anything, goes. Almost anything goes. Especially where people are anonymous, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's an important area where there could be some intervention. Again, in groups where you're part of it, where they're like-minded people, they may be amenable to following something like these guidelines. Or you, you, know, you could make them appropriate to the nature of the group, but to have basically guidelines of uh, care, respect, truthfulness, you know, mechanisms for working out differences and so forth. But that is, that's what skillful communication is about. So we have this, 
new medium and it's being uh, what uh, used with uh, without a lot of uh, guidelines you know and how much we want to participate might be an open question and how much and we each probably could, you know could bring in something like these guidelines to um, some of our own communications and that would make a huge difference you know make a I think in the long run if we don't have that you know then communication deteriorates right? <clears throat> that's a so we're getting into cultural social questions you know okay so an exercise we'll do a short exercise then go to walking meditation okay so ready for about a, a 10 minute exercise okay so here it is um First of all, uh, form into dyads and sit in proximity to a person. You can, if you're sitting in a chair, you could just uh, move your chair so you're facing the person. If you're sitting uh, down, just move so you're facing one other person. Okay. You can introduce yourself. Um, let's do. Let's try for two, and I'll see. Raise your hand if you need a partner. Okay, we have someone up front here. Okay, there you are. Okay. Raise your hand if you need a partner. Okay. Does anyone need a partner? Good. We have. Oh, you need one. Okay. Do, do you need one? What's that? I can't, I can't hear. Let's see. So, you could be a group of three if we need to. Is that okay? What? Uh, Yeah, it's okay to do it now. Maybe we'll do a few exercises. Uh, Maybe not not all the time. Yeah, just uh, meet meet a few different people. Yeah. Okay. And so, why don't you just join in with any group of two? Okay. And um, you'll have to do this with a little bit different timing. So, choose your group of two that you want to be part of. Okay. Okay, so get yourself a chair if, if you want to or just sit in a way that works. Okay. So this will have uh this will have uh four parts. First part is a reflection. How might I develop further? In my speech practice, each person reflect on that. What are one or two ways I want to develop further in my speech practice?
Okay, raise your hand if you need more time. Okay. And what we'll do is we'll be in dyads. We'll have both a focus on content and a focus on process. A lot of skillful speech, we do both. Right? And this is what will be important in bringing this into daily life. How can I focus at the same time on a particular content that we're talking about and also give us some attention to process, what I'm calling process, how I speak, how we're speaking together. So this is not easy to bring them together. We'll be doing that throughout the day because it's really a crucial dimension of speech practice. So we usually we get totally wrapped up in the content, right? And so this will feel a little bit artificial at first. After you do it for a while, you get used to it. You know, but it could today feel a little bit artificial, a little bit awkward, I should say, that I'm, I'm, I'm paying attention to content, but I'm also paying attention to how I'm speaking, right, at the same time. We're gonna, but we're gonna do this in the exercises. So we'll have a chance for each person to speak. It'll be about, be about two and a half minutes each. And when you're speaking, the other person doesn't say anything. So you just get to have the floor, perhaps for the first time in your life. <laughs> no one was interrupting. <laughs> okay. And you get to speak for two and a half minutes just to explore how you'd like to develop further in your speech practice. The other person is a listener. We'll do that and then we'll switch. The other person will have a chance to speak. Now, the content will be how I want to develop further in my speech practice. The process will be what we'll attend to in terms of process is we'll be trying to speak following one or two of the guidelines. Okay? Remember the guidelines being truthful, being helpful, coming out of a good heart, and uh, having good timing. We'll assume that the timing is generally good. <laughs> but it could, it could even mean, is this the right time for me to speak about this? Maybe that comes up, right? But generally the timing is okay. And so we might be, so think to yourself, which of these guidelines which I, would I want to work with? You might want to just work with being truthful and just focus on that. Or you might want to work with, in conveying this, can I kind of come out of a warm, kind heart, both towards myself and towards others? So just reflect now. And you, if you want to try to work with two, that's okay. I probably suggest working just with one. Okay? And reflect now on which of the guidelines you'd like to work with. Truthful, helpful, coming out of a good heart, good timing. Okay, is that enough time? And so I think what I'll do is, in, in, uh, we'll have about two and a half minutes. Midway through, I'll ring a bell once. And if you'd like to, you could just pause and come back to that intention, maybe to be truthful, and just sort of re-ground in that intention. So we'll find that in applying and developing skillful speech, working with intentions is really, really crucial.
You know, it's like remembering the intention before a meeting to work with the guidelines. It goes such a long way. It's a crucial aspect of Buddhist practice to work, to remember the intentions. In daily life, we get so busy, we forget intentions very easily, right? And so bringing in intentions is going to be crucial. Okay? And the way we'll do this, so uh, decide among you who will go first. Maybe sometimes I do it, um, why don't you just decide who's going to go first? Okay? Don't start yet. Don't start yet, but just raise your hand if you're going first. Okay. Very good. Every group should have one person going first. <laughs> okay. Okay. And then, so I'll time it. And before each person goes, we'll set in, Was that a question? Yes, you have a question about the process. Yeah, let me say one more thing. Uh, before each person goes, I'll invite 10 seconds to set your intention. The intention will be to be truthful or to be helpful or warm. So, uh, yeah, so that's all the instructions. So let's use the mic, if we can, one of the people helping, to, so everyone can hear the question. Okay, if we have up front... So I'm slightly confused about something. Yeah. Um, It seems like, so there's content and process. Yeah. And the content is the things, what we're saying we'd like to work on. Yeah. And when you're talking about having an intention around, you know, one of the guidelines. Yeah, that's process. That's process. That's process, yeah. And is that mostly towards ourselves? Because obviously if we're speaking about something, it couldn't be not kind to someone else. When I'm talking about yeah, it's about it's about yourself following the guideline in this interaction. I, I guess what I'm saying is, when if if my intention is to improve myself, how could I possibly be unkind to someone else in talking about that? Is it how we're treating ourselves as we speak about it? No, it's really just you know, as you're speaking, having the intention to come out of a warm heart. Okay. And, and do that as best you can. Okay. So it's, it's more general, or it's, I'm going to have the intention to be truthful, and it's not, it's not like we're kind of continually monitoring ourselves. It's just, you know, it's, it's just having a general intention uh, at the beginning. In the same way you might in a, you know, a conversation, you might, before you go into the conversation, saying, I really want to be careful in bringing up this difficult stuff. And you have the intention to be careful, but... After you have the intention, you're just in the conversation. So, so it's a, it's a partly a training in working with intention. So the intention you have the intention, and then you know hopefully it's guiding you. You know, and like I said, I'm going to pause, and you can remember your your guideline. Does that, does that get at it enough? What's what's the what's the question that's still there? I guess I. Um... All these intentions make sense to me if you're having a hard conversation with someone or if you're talking to them about something that happened or... Well, let's let's go into that later. For now, just apply it to this conversation. We don't have to work out everything for difficult... We'll do that in the afternoon more. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Here, it's just make the intention (laughs) and then let it go. Okay. But, But I see what you're saying in terms of applying it to difficult conversations. Okay. Any other questions about the instructions? 
Okay. So, and I should say, as a listener, you want to just listen fully. And also, you can see yourself to listen out of a receptive, kind, empathic heart. Maybe that can be the guideline. Just to listen fully, be present. If you notice yourself distracted, come back and be there, uh, you know, listening with the intention to listen empathically to the other person. Okay? So uh, let's set the intention. I'll invite you to set the intention, either a speaker or listener, and I'll ring the bell in 10 seconds to start. Okay. If you'd like to pause and come back to your intention, you can do that. Do that just for five, ten seconds and you can continue talking.
So finish up and thank your partner in whatever way you'd like. And now we'll switch roles. Speaker becomes listener, listener becomes speaker. And again, we'll start by about 10 seconds for the new speaker, just to set the intention for the guideline that you want to work with. So uh, set your intention. And as the, as the listener, just to listen fully, notice if you get distracted. And try to listen with a kind heart empathically, interested in the other person. Okay, so I'll ring the bell to start in 10 seconds. So set the intentions right now. So just pause for about five seconds just to check into your intention as the speaker and listener. And I'll ring the bell in about five or six seconds to start again. Okay.
Thank your partner in whatever way you'd like. We're going to stay, uh, we're going to do one more piece, which is that um, I'm going to invite you just to talk for about another three, four minutes with your partner about what that was like. And this is um, not structured in the same way as what we just did. Just to talk informally. What was it like to talk about that? What was it like in particular to pay attention both to an intention and to content? Did it feel awkward, hard? Could you do that? Did you forget your intention immediately? <laughs> you know, just to, just to see how, how was that? Uh, how was it to have someone listen to you carefully? You know, just whatever you experience there. And what we're going to do is we're going to listen carefully. This is just informal conversation. You know, anyone can speak, just flow of conversation. That's the content. And the process is to still work with one guideline. Okay? And you can choose, maybe choose the same one or another one. So... Just think right now, what guideline would I like to work with for an informal conversation? Maybe truthfulness, maybe coming out of a good heart, whatever. Okay, just think what you'd like to look at. It'll be about a just three-minute, three-and-a-half-minute conversation. What guideline would you like to use? Could be the same one. And again, we'll be uh, training in a sense by focusing on both content and also process. So we're going to get into the content, but we're not, we're not going to just, as it were, be totally immersed in the content. There's a part of us that's going to watch the, uh, how we in, are interacting. Again, it can feel a little awkward, but as we get used to it over time, it starts to be more natural. Okay? Any questions about what we'll do now, just now? Okay, so we'll use the same process. Uh, set your intention, and I'll ring the bell to start in 10 seconds. Okay.
Come back just for five seconds to your intention. Come back to your intention about the guideline you're following, and I'll ring the bell to start another five seconds. Okay. So bringing the conversation to a close. And in whatever way you'd like, thank your partner. Or I know one group of three, thank your partners. Thank your partners. And let's uh, come back to the whole group. So we'll take just a little bit of time if there are any observations or questions that came out of that exercise. You can see how the uh, training and speech practice has different dimensions. We could work with the guidelines and try to look at our behavior, how we are, um, and that, that, that's pretty accessible. And we could help but to um, start to develop this capacity to have attention both to content and process at the same time. For most of us, that's harder. How many people found it just a little awkward? Yeah, and that, that's natural. But as you do it, it's, uh, it's almost necessary, you can imagine, to actually, how can we both be involved with something and still pay attention to skillful speech, right? So any observations or questions that came out of uh, to what we just did with the partners? And let's again, we have the uh, someone with the microphone, one in the back and then up front here. So we have a second person who's helping with that microphone. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, with my partner, I found it was so interesting how the element of time shows up. Yeah. As soon as I engage with someone when I'm speaking, I, there's like a timer that starts in my head where I'm like, how long is this going to take? What is your problem? How can I solve it? Yeah. How can I get back to what I was doing before? Yeah. And... Um, I found, and we both found to some degree, that I couldn't, like my intention was to have an open heart. Yeah. And I could not get the timer to start with with that intention. It's like they couldn't exist in the same 
yeah. space. Yeah. And when I had the open heart, I had no understanding of time. There was yeah. no time yeah. wasted. Yeah. So great observations, right? So a lot of this is really just seeing how our minds work or how the, some of our habits, right? And really noticing them. And along the way, we can maybe see what seems helpful to change, work through, let go of. But it's um, um, a lot of self-knowledge is not always fun. <laughs> there was a Tibetan, there was a Tibetan teacher, uh, Trung, uh, Chagam Trungpa Rinpoche. He had a line which was, "Self-knowledge is seventy percent bad news." <laughs> Not based on scientific study, but has a certain resonance. So others, we had, we had up front, we had one right here. Um, I spend a lot of times, even including when you were giving the instruction, I keep trying to, well, what, what should I talk about? I mm. try to find the right, the correct thing to talk about. Yeah. And then when my partner is speaking, I immediately get into the correctness mode. Like, it's, is this correct? And it's trying to determine what is correct and what is not correct. Mm. And my intention was set on uh, kindness. But the, the, the truthfulness is dominant. Yeah. So. Yeah. How, how many can relate to that? Okay. So it's really, again, it's in part, it's just noticing patterns, noticing habits, and um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I know a lot of this from the work on the judgmental mind. You know, there's a certain way that we uh, want to get it right, right? We want to get it right, and <clears throat> for many of us, that's got us through school, success, etc., right? And... Um, so really just to, just to notice that and somehow, and especially I think you were noticing how that sometimes those patterns get in the way of the kind heart, right? And that's just, again, it's not, it's a little painful to notice that. So I want to thank you for being willing to bring this up. And I also, I didn't mention it at the beginning, but I, I want to invite uh, agreement about confidentiality that you know, whatever is said here uh, can be, uh, really stays here. People are making personal comments and so forth. Anything that I say, you can communicate. <laughs> Except if I say so, you can. Uh, okay, but thank you. Any other observations? Yeah. I think we'll have uh, just uh, in the back where you're going to that person, and then two more, and then we'll, then we'll f- complete. So my, my intention was to look at truthfulness yeah. and particularly in the face of aggressive, well, there was no aggression coming at me, but I realized when I was talking about it that all my nonverbals were to deflect any kind of aggression or judgment that might be coming at me. Mm. And so my smiling and my nodding and my all, you know, I saw how all of that was uh, caught well. up in that same process. So a lot there, isn't there? Just in that, so seeing, maybe again, coming from past uh, experiences, past habits, how, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, how many can relate to that, that? 
that there are, you know, that we have patterns maybe which are meant to help keep us as safe as possible, right? They're really, they're, you know, and yet they uh, have us doing certain things, saying certain things, right? So it's a lot there, you know, seeing the, seeing those patterns, habits, again, it's it's not, um, it's some pain, painful to feel that, yeah. You know, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I, I imagine it's that way, yeah. And again, how, how many can see some version of that yourself? You know, some way that we're conditioned to speak in a certain way. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So I think um, from my end, our process felt um, like certainly I was very seen. Mm-hmm. We were both very seen and felt and super, super genuine, mm-hmm. which is interesting because when you come to something like this, it's sort of like I have this sort of, I'm doing something wrong in my life and I want to fix it. And so I want to become more mindful in my speech. Mm. But then what I realized from something you said in that process mm-hmm. is that in truth, that inner wisdom is really there. Yeah. And there's nothing really to fix. It's yeah. just to really touch it. Yeah. And go from there instead. Yeah. And I think that was a really powerful moment for me. Really, really, really shifts things. It really, it's a really, uh, really helpful comment because uh, it, uh, you know, I was saying self-knowledge is 70% bad news, but one way that we hold the training here or uh, really in general when we, to mindfulness practice or look at our own minds, there always are two phases going on. One of them is that we look to our habitual patterns um, and some of that is can be painful. We notice things, we notice habits, we notice patterns which are not so skillful. And that's definitely part of what occurs here. We don't put that in our promotional literature so clearly for Spirit Rock here. Come to Spirit Rock. Discover your five main neurotic patterns. <laughs> Become experts on them. But um, some version of that's part of what we do. Um, but it's, it's not necessarily in a given order. But there's also the way that we develop further in beautiful qualities. A lot, all of which are essentially innate which are there in all of us. We develop in our empathy, our warmth, our kindness, our ability to see clearly. Those are all core qualities. And part of our practice is that those get strengthened. And so the big picture is that both are happening. We may be in one phase where one is predominant, but in the long run, uh, both occur. And over time, we actually have the potential to work through some of our habitual energies and have the beautiful qualities to get stronger and more predominant. That's where this all goes. You know. But the, the training is, um, sometimes the training, have to be really honest, sometimes the training is hard, whether it's with mindfulness or speech. And we're seeing patterns, that's why it's really crucial to have some of our time just really being with the uh, beautiful qualities developing. That's why 
practicing compassion, loving kindness, really, really crucial to bring out the uh, good energy. So thanks for that comment because that's, uh, it helps to kind of look at the bigger picture. Yeah. So we, I think we had one more up front here. You're okay? Okay, great. So I want to go into walking meditation now. And I took a little longer than I uh, had planned to, more or less going with the flow. And so let's take about 15 minutes for walking meditation. Can use the bathrooms. Uh, we'll come back at uh, 12.25. We'll have another segment. I'll probably, lunch will be probably one or possibly just a little bit later, just for your information, if you need to eat something during the break, whatever. Uh, but we'll, we'll have 15 minutes of walking. We'll go back into silence. A lot of uh, training in speech is really helped by the back and forth between silence and interaction. So we'll go into speech. Anyone need instruction in walking meditation? Okay, so why don't you stay up front, to come up front here, and I'll give that instruction. Others can just do walking meditation, use the bathrooms. We'll go into silence. We'll come back at 1225. Bring the one come. So the walking meditation is similar to the sitting meditation in that we typically focus on one object and when our mind wanders, we bring our attention back. And the walking meditation can be, is typically we begin just by being attentive to the soles of the feet, the contact with the floor or ground. Over time, the walking meditation can be with the whole body as we walk. Generally, at the walking meditation, the attention is inward. Even though we're walking, we're not doing much with our eyes. We're kind of just using our eyes enough to navigate. They can almost be half closed. The focus is more inward. So we'll do a very simple version of this. We'll be now walking in place. So be aware of the soles of your feet right now. And now slowly bring your weight into your right foot. So there's 60, 70, 80, 90%. Let your left foot come off the ground, but not walking forward, staying in place. Come down. Let the weight shift now to the left foot. The attention's on the left foot. Then let the right foot come off the ground, receive the attention. Come back down, the attention's on the right foot. 60, 70, 80, 90, attention on the left foot. And come back down. And do this on your own. We're kind of walking in place. And if you want to make a little mental label, you can say lifting, moving, placing, shifting. Lifting, or it could be a little simpler, just lifting, placing. Lifting, 
placing. And so we keep the attention on the sole of the foot. If it works for you, you could also, if it works a little bit better, you could be aware of your whole leg, but shifting from one leg to the other. come back to standing. And so generally we would, we would walk like this. The labels can be helpful just for saying, lifting, placing. Very soft in the mind, maybe 10, five or 10% of the attention, 90, 95% of the attention on the actual sensations. Again, it could be on just the sole of the foot. It could be on the whole leg. Some of us it might work with the whole body. And when the mind wanders, we just come back. The labels are helpful because they'll really tell you very directly if you're lifting and you've got, you know, thinking about something, you'll say lifting when you're not lifting. <laughs> and you'll get feedback really, really quickly. And so, um, and generally speaking, it's helpful to walk back and forth, maybe in a path It could be 50 feet, 60 feet. You come to the end, you stop, you can feel the body and then just keep going in the other way. Those are the simple instructions. So, any questions? Okay, so we have about 10 more minutes, okay? And you, you, if you want to, you could just do it in here or do it outside, use the bathroom, whatever.